0: This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello, welcome back to the Fintech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and this is, as I'm sure you all know, Bank Nerd Corner. So we have our favorite bank nerd, the banking and fintech editor at Bank Director, Kia Hazlitt. Kia, hello.
1: Hey, Alex, how are you?
0: I am doing fabulous. It is the calm before the storm, so to speak, in terms of upcoming travel. Are you on the road at all? Are you getting out there into the conference world?
1: Oh my God. Yes, I am. I am headed after or tomorrow. To okay. the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis's and the Conference of Bank Supervisors, State Bank Supervisors, Community Bank Research Conference that they hold, and it's a very exciting agenda. They are able; they got some papers in about the spring liquidity crisis <laughs> and about environmental impact on banking and transition. So it's pretty cool, and I will be a discussant on the final panel with the community bankers that are also in attendance as discussants, and then it'll be released. You can either watch it live, you can stream it, or you can listen to it when it drops in the FDIC's podcast feed.
0: Whoa. Oh, wow. Okay. This is way more exciting yeah, than very I thought. Upgra- so there's, I'm
1: upgrading yeah, <laughs> into regulator's there's like, podcast.
0: <laughs> there's podcast feeds. There's... I didn't know the term discussant. Is that a... Is that what people Oh, yeah. People it's a on... fancy word
1: for panelists. Where, okay. So right. at these papers, the academics or the researchers present sure. their paper... And then oh. you know three of them or four of them go in a row, and then someone provides commentary at the end. Trying you know they stitch together the common themes of the paper and their own experiences, wow. and that is the discussant.
0: Wow, wow! Because it's not like
1: a straight panel, you know.
0: Well, now so okay, this I'm learning all kinds of stuff. I have to say, this sounds like. The most nerdy bank shit I've ever heard in my entire Truly. life. Like <laughs> by far. Like this is next level. I've attended
1: this conference as a journalist, just covering the papers. Yeah. Um there's actually like a decent amount of participation from different regulatory agencies. Mm. And this conference was started in part because the regulators felt like they were hearing from community banks a lot of, you know, concerns and complaints and arguments about the impact of, you know, rules. On their business. And the regulator basically kind of realized, like, well, we don't know. We don't know if that's true. We don't know if it's kind Uh, of how widely felt this is. And so they wanted to bring in collaboration between academics, regulators, you know, the researchers that regulators employ. And then the community banks themselves to kind of have some commentary around or like and study around mm-hmm. the different impacts on community banks of, of different things. And so it's just and then they do a big survey. The CSBS does a really big survey with all of their state regulators. And then mm. they present the survey findings every year. So it's pretty cool. That is been going cool. on for for like several years. Like I, this is like year seven or thing or whatever.
0: Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com slash fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. So... I have to ask, like, is there someone like an academic maybe or like a regulator who's like the rock star of this conference that everyone's like taking selfies with and like trying to like meet? Is there such a person or is it like a fresh cast of faces every time? I
1: imagine there is. I, oh man, I haven't gone in several years. And, you know, the research presented kind of, you know, when I first started going to this conference, it was uh, post-financial crisis, right? and mm. And I felt like, you know, I was coming into this conference and there would be academics who would present research that happened that like studies banking before deposit insurance was invented. And so there was like just more than one paper about civil war banking. And I was sitting there being like, what am I supposed to draw from this? What am I supposed to write? Um,
0: Looking for story angles. Tell me
1: like how, what are the modern day lessons? But I felt (laughs) like there's As, you know, I I follow some academics on Twitter and they kind of make some jokes about like, this is more of of a comment than a question, but I got to see that in real life. And so I wouldn't have known at the time who are the rock stars, but it'll be interesting to see now. I know that there are going to be some papers presented that have been very popular this year, but I don't know if that quite translates into rock star status, if that makes sense. And I don't know how I would recognize the rock star in the room, maybe so we'll see. We'll see. Like I'll, I'll report back what the nerd, what the true nerds are saying um, <laughs> <laughs> in a month.
0: Okay. Well, we look forward to that report. If anyone from the St. Louis Fed is listening, I would very much like an invitation to this conference next year because I am an aspiring bank nerd. I'm not sure I'm ready to be a discussant <laughs> for many, many years, but it's mostly it would papers,
1: to- Alex. It's mostly papers. You know how I, I, I mean, send you yeah and I tell you to read the papers that's what this conference is
0: god it's like a whole conference of kia telling me to read these papers okay fair fair that's uh (laughs) that's totally fair makes my travel schedule of going to money 2020 in a couple weeks seem sort of tame by comparison honestly like i've
1: heard of it tell me about tell me about this little where's it at
0: so it's in my favorite place which is las vegas nevada and just you and your Twenty thousand closest friends in fintech. Uh, oh my god! Veni- what are we The Venetian Hotel. Yeah, it's like really like easy to get around. It's easy to find where people are. It's not mm-hmm. like there's sixty tall white guys wearing blue blazers that you're trying to sort of distinguish between to find the one that you're looking for. So no, it's relaxed. Fine. It's fun. Yeah. It's very low stress, honestly. So I'm, I'm not Did even. Did I
1: hear that you're doing like you're playing sports at Money 2020? This Did is I hear true. That?
0: Yes, you did. And it's by far the thing I'm looking forward to the most. We are doing the first FinTech Takes pickup basketball game at Money oh 2020. God. So we have a gym off the strip, a little YMCA gym that we've rented out for a couple hours. And I put out the call to sort of aspiring FinTech pickup basketballers. And, you know, quite a few people responded. It's going to be really interesting because I'm old and out of shape and exhausted mm, uh-huh. from all the chasing kids around and stuff. So my game has kind of gone to hell and I never was really that good in the first place. Right, and then right. there's, there's other people like me who are going to be sort of in a similar situation. I'm like, oh, it sounds fun. We'll just sort of run up and down and jog and kind of, you know, have some fun and make jokes. And then there are some others who are like 26-year-old fintech founder, just graduated college, yeah. you know, played a little like division two, you know, whatever. And it's mm. like- uh-huh. And they're like, yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to just having fun and kind of catching up. And I'm a little concerned that they're going to be like dunking on me and then I mm-hmm. won't be able to like, you know, write about them in my newsletter anymore because they'll have like just sort of shown me that I'm not in their league. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, but it should be super fun. Well,
1: one, if I was going to be playing in this basketball pickup, something that I would be worried about is that I'm a big smack talker and I would oh. that would come out so fast <laughs> even if i even if i really really tried to not do that and love that, that.
0: i love that because <laughs> like that would be like a fintech company you know founder is like going down and makes a shot on you and you're like your business model is trash and just like running down to the other end of the court
1: but then i also am thinking about like do you remember when barack obama was president he would play a lot of basketball and oh, what yeah. it would it have been like to play basketball against the president and like are you supposed to like go easy? Are you not supposed (laughs) to go easy? Like, And so the social dynamics of pickup basketball, I think are very fraught. I totally agree. good luck. And I hope you don't get injured and you have a productive rest of the conference.
0: I appreciate that. Yeah. If people see me limping around the rest of money, 2020, what they'll know is that, yeah, on that Sunday morning, I went a little too hard and tried to impress someone and strained my MCL or something. So we'll hope for the best, no injuries, lots of fun, uh, in the desert. And, uh, like you, I will give a report card back post-event.
1: Yeah, let me know who has the nerd to your conference.
0: That's already settled. <laughs> you, I think, need to, for the St. Louis conference, St. Louis Fed conference, you need to organize, like, what, Can you, is there pickup soccer? Or, like, what sport would you choose to organize a bunch of bank academic nerds into playing?
1: So at Aoba, there's, like, a really nice tennis facility, and they changed some of the course to pickleball. Oh, that's And right, right at the end of our conference, there was, like, maybe, like, one or two days, and there was, like, a national pickleball tournament. Yeah. And I thought that that was kind of a missed opportunity. Uh, The other thing too is, remember the photo of the discount window that I sent you so that you could see it was an actual photo? Yep. That photo is from the St. Louis Fed, so I'm really hoping that I can go take a photo in front of the discount. It's not like a game, but it would be kind of some fun... Like you got to do yeah. that. Yeah, to do the discount window. I, I think there's a museum there. So, oh that's my like god, I'm so jealous. Um, of that. Again, that Not a sport. Not a sport.
0: Well, <laughs> so. I mean, I guess, I guess, doing a tour of bank history in a banking museum curated by the Federal Reserve counts as a sport for academics yeah. that
1: study the bank. I could industry? make it competitive. We could do trivia. We could do bank trivia. Yeah. Sometimes at conferences, I, when I would at my old employer, I would go to conferences and meet bankers who are at these conferences and I would try to like remember something about their bank. I would like Um, in my head, play a trivia game. If I could tell like, you know, if they, what their ticker was and maybe if I knew what deals they had done. So that was, um, Like, one time I met the chairman of Huntington at bank, and I shared with him that the deal that Huntington did for First Merit, like, taught me a lot about bank accounting for deals. Wow. And it led to me, like, having just, like, this big understanding of tangible book value dilution and the earn back. And I was like, thank you so much for doing that. It was just such a- What a, a sweet like,
0: story. That <laughs> is such a yeah. sweet story. <laughs> like, that's,
1: what I would, that's what I do at conferences. That's like the little game I play in my Dad. head is like, what bank fact do I know about your bank that I can like bring up in a conversation?
0: That's pretty good. I, I was going to say we should, maybe this can be a in-person activity. Maybe sometime in the future, we'll do a live bank nerd corner recording. And if we do, I say we do it at a bar- and we record the podcast and then after, you know how famously,
1: they famously acoustically. Uh, yeah. It's great. Sound well, I you know, I've done it sound. before. It's yeah. like
0: comes through just perfectly. Yeah. And then after we play trivia. You know how they do like bar trivia? But we play trivia, but it's bank nerd trivia. Yeah. I think that sounds pretty fun.
1: Last year I did do trivia for my company for our charity giving week, which is actually going on right now. Oh, nice. And I was like tempted to make it like bank trivia through the decades. Yeah. And I just wasn't sure just how many of my coworkers would run me out of the office <laughs> if I did that. But I was like, I threw in a couple of bank questions in the like 80s and 90s, some of the famous deregulatory acts mm, and some of the big bank mergers. They, they were not impressed by that.
0: <laughs> well, okay. So for folks listening, if you're looking for a fun sponsorship opportunity at an event that's coming up that Kia and I might be both going to, Bank Nerd Corner Live Recording Plus Bank Trivia, I trivia. think, would be uh, be the activity. So with that, Kia, that was quite an introduction should we get into. We have a couple of stories. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit of a lighter episode. A so Kia and I are going to, I think, mostly just sort of chat today. But should we hit a couple of the news stories from the last month or so?
1: Yeah. The first one I wanted to share with you was the OCC's 2024 Bank Supervision Operation Plan, um, which came out last week or two weeks ago for this recording. Mm. And what it is, is it's a document, it's only five pages, but it outlines the OCC's supervision priorities, so the exams that they'll be conducting. And then it helps implement the supervisory strategies across all of the supervised banks. So basically, it's like putting the banks on notice, but it's like a document that's like ostensibly for the supervisors, so everyone kind of knows what to expect. And then this document changes from year to year. And so you can kind of track some of the more interesting changes, like what was a priority in 2022 or 23 versus 24. And so, you know, you can probably guess the lead item on that document is going to be liquidity and contingency planning. But there were some interesting ones that I noted that are probably relevant to, like people in fintech who have partnerships with banks. And you know i think a little bit about the supervisory parameter that the occ supervises the banks and then asks and expects banks to supervise their fintech partnerships and so that kind of trickles down the supervision expectations to the fintechs themselves and i think that this is the first year we've seen you know the fintech obviously the occ has been aware of fintech trends for a while but this it's becoming more and more explicit And so ones I wanted to flag from the 24 supervision plan include, you know, examiners, identifying, assessing products and services, and then third-party relationships that banks have that offer or that include unique, innovative, or complex structures, including real-time payments. So real-time payments get thrown in there, banking as a service, distributed ledger, and then the use of artificial intelligence technologies. And examiners should figure out for banks that are involved in those, the institution's due diligence, ongoing monitoring and risk governance. And then they should assess the risk management processes and controls with the third party partnerships Mm. to safeguard against operational compliance, reputation, financial and other risks. This isn't super, like I'm going to say super new. Hopefully this is maybe, if it's the first time it's written, written down in this way, this is not the, this shouldn't be new to anyone. But I just thought it was really interesting. One, that real-time payments is getting thrown in there. I wonder if, you know, like one, arguably a form of real time payments has been available for five years. Right. And this is like where I feel like I'm seeing this new now because of Fed now, not because of the clearinghouse's RTP. But also, you know, regulators are trying to figure out exactly how they can use existing supervision authority to supervise the risks that come from fintech relationships. And they're trying to also articulate what kind of risks they see from fintech partnerships.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the thing that jumps to mind right away is just this idea that, as you sort of outlined, I mean... And I haven't, I haven't read the document yet. Did you send it to me? Did Oh, okay, yeah, because I... There's a
1: link. I put the link in the Did doc. you?
0: Okay, well, I, uh, the, uh, I... always
1: put the links uh, in my uh, document. Here's the thing. <laughs>
0: here's the thing, listeners, is the theme of this podcast is really key. It gives me homework and then I don't do it or I do it till the last minute. I but, just
1: ask him to put... Uh, <laughs> text messages constantly. Podcast. I'm just asking him. Yeah, like, what he wants me to talk about? She wants to be
0: prepared. No, I appreciate you. I mean, I think the thing that I kind of hone in on is... As we've talked about many times on this and other podcasts, fintech partnerships are very, like, different, right? There's not, like, one standard way of doing it. Of course, distributed ledgers that way, use cases for real-time payments. So, like, all of these things that they like artificial intelligence, I guess the thing that I don't understand, and maybe you can educate me a little bit on this, is not every examiner who's going to sit down with a bank is going to be equally well-versed in all of these areas, right? It reminds me, here's my insane analogy for this episode of the podcast. Yeah, go, let's hit me. Reminds me of getting qualified to teach social studies in Montana because that's what I got my degree in when I went to school. It's going to be a social studies teacher in high school. And you get a social studies broad field education degree that technically qualifies you to teach history Political science, psychology, anthropology, geography, sociology, like probably three or four other ones that I'm forgetting. And when I saw that, I was thinking to myself for the first time, like, ooh, you know, I think I could really only teach, like, American history and maybe political science. And that's, like, it. Like, I can't teach maybe psychology, but, like, anthropology is beyond me. Geology is beyond me. Or not geology. Geography. um, Geography. I can't teach all of these different subjects And I, my naive dumb question is for supervisors, for bank supervisors, they can't teach all these subjects. They can't supervise all of these different areas or know what intelligent questions to ask. So like, how does the OCC make sure that the sort of novel nature, and I know I borrowed that word from the Fed's new program rather than the OCC, but like these sort of novel or new or interesting programs, like how do you standardize around that and get to a point where supervisors can effectively manage that?
1: So- I should have started at the beginning. A lot of this is going to be my opinion and my analysis. No, this is this is like
0: the facts laid out <laughs> by Kia. <IKEA. laughs>
1: this, this is what the OCC told me. No, yeah, yeah. yeah so right. I will say that you know the OCC talks a lot about the areas of risk that they are communicating with their supervisors right. and that they are communicating with their banks to expect supervisors to ask about. I think you can assume from that that there is some internal communication at the OCC where in supervisory training... Ongoing supervisory training and communications from different groups within the OCC about what they want supervisors to see. So, like my analogy is I'm a referee. I think referees have a lot in common with bank examiners. And one of the things they might have in common is the expectation of ongoing training Training. that is mandatory to complete. And that when rules, so like every single year, there's probably like a new rule in soccer. Yeah. Um, or and a points new interpretation. Of emphasis for, yeah, points of yeah. emphasis. Mm-hmm. And I need to know what that rule is before it goes into effect. And then on a certain day, which is the fiscal year, so it's July 1, that yeah. rule will go into effect. And yeah. I, as the referee, am responsible for both applying that rule and explaining if there is a new rule change to yeah. the team when they are confused about its enforcement. And so to kind of apply that to the OCC, I imagine there has been a significant amount of communication over the last three years about understanding fintech partnerships, the different types of partnerships, and helping them learn, you know, the different terms, who the major players are, what kind of banks, what does this look like when it's done well, what does it look like when it's done poorly, and then In the actual 2024 supervisory plan or supervision plan, the OCC says that they plan on using horizontal reviews to generate an agency-wide view of risk. They do not talk about what specific risk, it's just risk in general, but the supervision group may direct horizontal assessments during the supervisory cycle. Horizontal exams are a way for regulators to send examiners that have specialties in different types of areas um, in different risks into different banks to assess the same thing at all of the banks. Ah. And so because the regular examination staff, which is often for the OCC Mm size-based, they have a community group, they have a regional group, and they have a large group, Mm -hmm. they might not have the very specific specialty that one $10 billion, one $5 billion bank has that An examiner that has that specialty that yeah. you can specialize in, you can learn a lot about, would maybe go to the, every single bank that kind of does that and be able to assess it. And so yeah. in the past, the OCC has used horizontal reviews on shared national credits, on commercial real estate, and on consumer compliance. So if you think about, like, remember the Wells Fargo fake account scandal, one of I do the things that. that, you know, Wells Fargo is an OCC supervised bank. The OCC announced that they were going to do consumer compliance exams in all banks, kind of like not at the Wells Fargo level, but like the regional bank level. And they were going to go in very specifically and look for this issue of fake accounts. Yeah. And that
0: issue has popped up in a few places post Wells Fargo. So that was a good instance.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting to see kind of that, like that was a supervisory response to something, right? And right. so to see how they were like, well, is this happening everywhere? And yeah. so that is. It'll be interesting to see maybe what we can learn, what the OCC learns, and then what we've from their findings mm-hmm. if they're able to deploy examiners in this way. And this is a little different than how we've seen other regulators approach third-party p- partnerships. Um, yeah. And I'm speaking about the Fed's announcement that they will have a novel activity supervision program that will be nestled, and the group will be nestled in within the existing supervision
0: it's oh, just going to be like a specialty that. group.
1: Yeah. You're not going to like the way that I read the release, you're not going to have maybe two exams. You would just have like two teams on your exam
0: mm. and they are
1: like kind of, there'd be a list and there's going to be banks that have been identified as being, you know, fed supervised banks that should be in the novel program will be on that list. And then the supervision program for the fed will use data and will bring in, it'll be data driven. So I guess like, Hopefully, all the exams are data driven, but this one says they'll be data. driven I kind of get um, <laughs> the sense
0: they're not, just based on the way they talk have, about it. Yeah. I have no
1: idea. They specified they'll be using data. They'll be using okay. like really. They're looking for pretty fast data. So I think like they are. You know, you, you and I have talked about some of the lags that can come from quarterly, huh? month end, weekly yeah. data. So yeah. this group will have access to data that's probably updated more frequently, and then they will also bring in industry, people in the industry, as well as academics to help them figure out how they should be thinking about risk, evolution, and supervision. Mm.
0: And then that drives the next generation of papers that get presented at your conference. With any yeah. luck. <laughs> awesome. No, that makes sense. I do find it really interesting. I mean, the as we've talked about multiple times, and I think you and I have both written about like the OCC is such an interesting kind of bellwether for a lot of this stuff, I think, just because of the role that they play. And, you know, to your point, I mean, I, I would imagine that there's sort of a balance you have to strike between, and not dissimilar to refing probably, but like there's a balance you need to strike between familiarity with the person or the bank or the group that you're overseeing yeah. with a certain amount of objectivity and expertise in particular novel or Is interesting a- areas. So. Yeah, how they blend those two together will be really interesting to me because I, again, not having studied the history of how OCC conducts its uh, examinations, but I would guess this is a bit of a shift just directionally from the old days where probably was just much more of a you know, an examiner or a team of examiners for this bank, and they just do that over and over every year and kind of get to know the institution. Like, feels like it's sort of shifting structurally a bit.
1: I'm not sh- 100% sure what the rate of, like, examiners to the same banks. Like, in soccer, sometimes I see, like, the same teams, like, a couple times a year right. because they're in, we're in the same geography and there's only so many referees right. in right. Nashville and there's only so many teams. Or there's only so many referees in Nashville who ca- have, like, the level of certification that i have right. or the experience that i have and can manage these teams but it is funny to think about like so in college soccer which is going on right now they really don't want the same you don't want like a team in like chapel hill to see unc one of the best women's teams in the country every single week and right. so they will bring in referees from other parts of the country yeah to referee because you don't want that kind of familiarity you want the team to get like New people, <laughs> new right. referees. Right. And so I do know that for the largest banks, they have on-site examiners. And so they right. will get like the same person and yeah, they'll yeah, see yeah. that person like five days a week. Yeah. I, you know, if you are on the like a six month, a 12 month, and 18 month exam cycle, I don't know what the odds are that you're seeing the same the full same exam team. Maybe you're seeing the same examiner in charge. Maybe you're seeing the same, a couple of the the same people, but a different examiner in charge, things like that. And then that team, again, like the utility of the horizontal team, the horizontal exam is that the specialist can come in and be like, this is the thing we're really good at.
0: Kind of get airdropped into the places where they need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, I will be curious to see how the, um, new areas that are really, truly like emerging. Like fintech in a way is not new. And so I do think there is a bit of a playbook around like banking as a service and we're doing, but like real-time payments, I mean, again, not new. We've had the Yeah, the real-time payments
1: inclusion kind of surprised me. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's really interesting. I I wonder if that sort of indicates that the OCC is expecting a significant uptick in adoption of real-time payments because we've sort of been stuck at a, a relatively low level. And community banks getting into it presents sort of novel risks. Can we jump to a different
1: regulatory agency? What else is on the regulatory agenda?
0: Oh, my goodness. My friends at the CFPB released some new guidance last week, or for those listening two weeks ago, on some of my favorite regulations, actually. So FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, ECOA, which is the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Much of this is sort of codified in Reg B. The CFPB, which now is a principal regulator in charge of those sort of consumer protection laws, they issued guidance basically sort of reminding, I suppose, lenders, both bank lenders and non-bank lenders, that their responsibilities under Reg B for conducting fair credit underwriting, for using consumers' data in the appropriate ways, and specifically for providing adverse action notices to consumers that are rejected for loans are all still requirements that they must adhere to even as they move into the brave, not-so-new world of AI and machine learning and alternative data, and as their underwriting algorithms become more complex. So To give just a tiny bit of history on this, adverse action notices are basically a requirement under the law in the U.S. that if you apply for credit and are declined, you have the right to request a list of principal reasons for why you were declined. And so if you've ever done this, what you likely get back are a fairly generic set of reasons that don't really tell you much. They kind of hint directionally at what the problem might have been. So it might say, Insufficient income, it might say unable to identify or verify uh, specific data elements, it might give your credit score and then a list of specific reason codes for why your credit score was too low. So too many inquiries, you know. too many missed payments on specific trade lines, derogatory information like a bankruptcy, so on and so forth. Those sort of rote checklist reasons that get provided through adverse action notices actually come from a set of forms and a checklist that the Federal Reserve published, I think, back in 1985. And at the time, they were like, OK, we're giving you these forms and these checklists. This is really just a starting place. But the intention of the law is We want you to be as specific as possible in telling people why they were declined. And the reason we want you to do that is, A, we want to discourage discrimination. So if you're saying the reason you were declining someone, you're sort of inherently saying it wasn't because I was discriminated. And that's kind of something that you can use later in discovery if you feel like there is a pattern of discrimination. And I think more importantly, actually, we want to help consumers understand why they were declined and sort of have a roadmap for how they get approved next time. So like, what is it about your credit history or your behavior that's causing lenders to decline you for credit? And, you know, this is why you were declined and what you can do better. Uh, Side note on all of this, even though they said, hey, don't use these forms and these checklists as the only way to do this, that is inevitably what all lenders did. So since 1985 until very recently, everyone's just been sort of using these forms and these checklists This, by the way, Kia, I think is a really good example of why regulators don't like getting pinned down on providing specific (laughs) guidance because...
1: I think the form is the safest thing to do. If the regulator published it, just go ahead and copy and paste. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. And the regulators mm -hmm. like, no, no, no. Don't
0: copy and paste. Like, this is not what you're supposed to do. But people are doing it. And I know for a fact, having talked to lawyers about this over the last couple of weeks... It's just seen as sort of the safest thing to do, right? Like this yeah, is their list; 100%. these are their forms. I'm not going to stray from that at all. I'm not going to take on if these are any the reasons i can anxiety, yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's why lenders don't want to, or that's why regulators don't want to do that. Fast forward to today, and what has changed is it's no longer the Federal Reserve and the FTC and the OCC and the FDIC responsible for sort of making sure these things happen. Now we have the CFPB, who's entirely focused on consumer protection. And so they have taken this and basically said, look, you're not today in compliance with the law if you're just using these generic checklist items and forms, one. Two, if there are things you are doing that are causing someone to be declined, you have to tell them what those things are and you have to be specific, even if doing that will be embarrassing Or will potentially make your customers mad or confused. And so I think what they're trying to get at here is the idea that there are reasons that lenders decline people for credit that are very easy to explain, right? Kia, you have a bankruptcy. And until that bankruptcy comes off of your credit report, that's just a blanket no, we're not going to approve you for a loan. Okay, fair enough. It's not great because I can't change that, right? If I have a bankruptcy on my record, I just have to kind of wait it out. But at least, like it's a fair reason. or they'll say, "You know, hey, you had too many inquiries over the last three months, and that's a sign of excessive uh, risk taking, and you're being declined for that. Well, okay, now next time I know, don't have as many inquiries. But I think what the CFPB suspects is that there are lenders that are using data elements in their underwriting that are predictive, but not really fair or intuitive, right? So, When you apply machine learning to underwriting, you can find all kinds of weird correlations, right? So you can find things like um, Kia, when she does status updates on Twitter, she always types in all caps. And we've run the numbers and found out that people who type in all caps on Twitter are worse credit risks than people who don't. Which, by the way, might be true. That actually, like, that's not an unreasonable thing to suspect. And the data science might support that. But according to these regulations, the way that the CFPB is emphasizing that they must be complied with, if you decline someone, and one of the principal reasons from a data science perspective is, hey, you know, your credit looked pretty good, you don't have any bankruptcies, you make enough income, but you type in all caps on Twitter, and that's what tipped it against you and why we declined you, in. you have to tell Kia Hazlitt that. And Kia Hazlitt, if I know her at all, will not be amused to hear that she was declined because she types in all caps. She will also very likely stop typing in all caps, which is a problem because then she's undermining the underwriting algorithm that you're using. She's gaming the system. And so there are a lot of concerns about, okay, if we actually are really specific in the way that we give adverse action notices Are we actually in, you know, compliance with the spirits of the law, which was help consumers change things that they can change about their actual financial behaviors? Are we allowing consumers or more importantly, fraudsters to game our underwriting algorithm by giving them a specific roadmap for how to get around it? And just like technically, is it possible to do that when our underwriting algorithms are becoming much more complex and we're using machine learning and we're using random forest of trees algorithms that are looking for all of these different correlations in weird ways is it possible to backwards engineer the principal reasons that someone was declined so kia first of all did that all make sense was my like rapid history lesson on adverse action notices <laughs> comprehensible
1: yeah so i'm sitting here thinking like god have i ever thought about adverse action notices in my life probably not I don't right probably not think so but this actually kind of feels like it has whiffs of the overdraft concerns. And yeah. the thing specifically that I'm thinking about is the role that the CFPB has played in disclosures around overdraft fees and account yeah. fees, right? So, one of the very first things that the CFPB did was like come out with this like form, basically. It was kind of a template that banks could use to help explain their fees to consumers. And basically, if you mm. like showed this to consumers, you could charge them the account fees. They weren't, it wasn't seen as like being deceptive. And I'm wondering if like the CFPB thinks it's doing that here. And I don't know anyone who's taken an ANA and, or sorry, like a A A N and <laughs> yeah. looked at it and then like, oh my God, I'm really gonna, I'm really gonna sh- shape up. Like I can right. solve this, right. right? Like that's the other thing too, is like, if I need something because I'm poor and have a low credit score and then yeah. you tell me, that I'm poor and I have a low credit score, you're not actually solving my problem and you're not helping me solve my problem. Right. And so I'm kind of fascinated that, like, when you were explaining the purpose of AAN, I would actually argue, like, I don't know if it's served its purpose versus, like, just kind of given legal cover for banks to deny credit and to kind of articulate, like, who kind of gets credit in our country. And when you talked about discrimination and making sure that we're not accidentally discriminating and I was thinking like well you know discrimination racial discrimination gender discrimination in our country has been so insidious and it's so historical based that maybe you can point out that someone has a low credit score or maybe doesn't have high education and why that might be an acute rational right reason to deny someone credit or a loan or charge them a higher rate or whatever that would I guess that wouldn't be a notice, but that can also still have its roots in discrimination so again you totally. haven't fully stopped the whole like explicit discrimination you rather just more like kind of codified historical like maybe historical factors that have led to this denial but and the other thing too is I cannot believe that CFPB thinks this is a problem but as someone who like actually is now writing more about AI I actually do have to think about like you know who is thinking about what the risks that AI can pose yeah. how can AI hurt consumers and you know should I just get ahead of that with this like crazy specific or like adverse action notice guidance and just hope that like the thing that I was worried about actually just doesn't come to fruition versus should we like in five years revisit this issue and see what like Havoc AI has wrecked. I I have no idea, but I was just sitting here being like, I don't know if I think this is a big problem. Yeah. but can you not really about the thing with the all caps, like with, with the actual...
0: Yeah, you relation? can reverse engineer it. So one thing we do know is that generally speaking, and there are a couple of machine learning techniques that are kind of a pain in the ass for explainability, but most machine learning and AI, there are tools you can use. There was a paper that I read that was incredibly long and in-depth, you'd be proud of me, from FinReg Lab that was talking about and testing can we introduce explainability into sort of black box AI or machine learning underwriting models? And for the most part, their takeaway was you can. You can distill down a principal set of reasons that can then feed into adverse action notices. There are a couple like forest of trees type algorithms that are a little trickier than others. Don't ask me to explain what that is. But for the most part, it is actually doable. I think your question about like what value does it provide is a really good one, right? Because as it relates to discrimination, in the 70s, when these laws were passed, a lot of it was like loan officers, right? So like you go in, exactly, exactly. You're sitting down f- across the desk from the person and they, you can sort of tell, I'm sure, that like you're getting declined because they don't like who you are or what you look yeah. like. But, right. you know, one of the the things they talked about in the initial, like I actually went back and read the like Senate banking meeting notes. So this I got like super nerdy on this one. And they were talking about what their intentions were for the legislation. And one of the the things that they said was we want people to write down the reason that they're declining someone so that just like the act of writing it down might force you to sort of confront some of your biases or, or cognitive dissonance. So that was sort of the one of the principal intentions at the time. To your point though, as we fast forward today, obviously discrimination, still a huge, massive, systemic issue. And what I think is interesting is regulators, I think, have kind of moved on, not from trying to solve discrimination in lending, but the way they try to solve it is different, right? So now what they do is, instead of looking at individual adverse action notices, or even consumer complaints, quite frankly, what they do is they look at all of the loans that are approved and declined, and then they do like portfolio-level analysis to identify disparate impact patterns where it's like hey Bank of America just right. based on demographics we would expect you to be lending to x number of african americans and you're not so let's go in and unpack why that is and look for you know biases that might be creeping in so they they start from a macro level and then backwards engineer and so i don't think adverse action notices are really that useful anymore for screening out discrimination and and to your other point about like the value of them as a consumer education tool I don't disagree. I mean, I don't think like if I get a thing that says too many inquiries, I'm not gonna go, oh my God, I have to change my life. This is, this gives me a whole roadmap to like lifting myself out of poverty. Yeah. Thanks like, for telling not, me. That's probably not yeah. going to happen. I will say though that, and this gets to the distinction between new customers that come in the door versus existing customers. If a new customer comes in and applies and they get declined, I get it, right? Like they're kind of no one to you as a bank, they might actually be a fraudster you don't really want to give them a roadmap as to exactly why you decline them or how to get approved next time, or whatever. I, I totally get that. But I do kind of wonder if banks are missing a trick on existing customers. Because if I'm an existing customer of Bank of America and I have a checking account and a savings account and maybe a brokerage account, and then I apply for a loan, okay, when I go through the application process, they can authenticate that it is me. And so they know it's me. They know it's not a fraudster. And if they decline me, that should be a problem for Bank of America. It's not a, oh, man, we dodged a bullet by not giving this Alex guy a loan. It should be Alex is a valued customer. We weren't able to approve him for this loan. And that puts us in a pickle because we don't want him to be upset with us. We want to make sure he's solving his financial needs. And so what can we do? And this is where like FinTech's focus on building on-ramps into the credit system make a lot of sense to me. This is where like credit karma-like experiences that say, okay, here's why you were declined, but like, here's your credit score. Here's a free tool to monitor your credit score. Here are tips you can use. Here's a portal you can use to kind of monitor that and fix it. Maybe even go so far as to say, you know what, we weren't able to approve you, but we have a second look network of other lenders that we work with that we think could be able to approve you. And we care about making sure you get this money if you need it. So can we forward your application to these lenders or pre-approve you for these other loans? So, I mean, I think there's a lot more banks could do from an adverse action perspective for existing customers that could go well beyond the, what they're required to do in the regulation. And I actually think that might be a good business thing to do too, but I, I don't think that's how banks look at adverse action. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most, whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com slash fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility.
1: It is interesting to think, and I guess this will relate to our possibly unanswerable question, Mm. but to think about the role that banks can play in making their bank customers better bank customers. Right. And the adverse action notice is. Like, my banks aren't around telling me, like, Kia, like, you could be a better customer for us right. if you were X amount, whatever. Like,
0: I sense from your tone of voice when you were saying that, that that's, like, the annoying person <laughs> who you don't want to hear from in that instance.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well I, sometimes, like, Chase, like, cha- I'm sorry, I'm a Chase <laughs> customer. And sometimes, like, when I log into my, like, online banking, it'll be, like, pre- get pre-approved for a $2 oh, million sure. loan or mortgage. And I'm, like, <laughs> right, do you right, know right, me right. at all? Like, you have all of my financial information. Like, why would you? And so then part of me was like, man, if I like, could I Could I get a proof? And of course 000?
0: the answer is like, you um, go to them and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? It's like, you sent me here. You sent me no, here. No,
1: yeah, of course. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think about that. Like, what are, you know, if someone applies for credit and is denied, is that the end of that conversation or is that the beginning of that conversation? Right. Versus somewhat like, why don't banks prepare you to be better customers? Like, you know, I think there are some banks that maybe would help people with like getting ready to buy a home. But, you know, I've, I've never investigated those because, you know, I've been kind of scared if I, to buy like to buy Mm -hmm. a home, right? I live in Nashville, but is it possible for my bank to communicate with me that like, if I did these things in three years, I would be a really good candidate for a mortgage. Or something like that versus kind of that episodic, like me personally getting ready and then going to my bank and saying, I think I'm ready. And then my bank saying, no, you're not ready, right?
0: Right, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's very much of a attitude of, you'll come to us when you want something and we will be the arbiters of whether you get that thing or not. And it's not, um, I relate a lot of things back to parenting. Like it's not good parenting, right? To just be like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to not gonna tell you anything, but like, come ask me if you want this and I'll just give you a yes or no answer with no context. Like it's not a good way to build relationships. And I do think that you're right. Like, Banks have the ability to cultivate better customers over time. And so this sort of distinction between like, hunting versus farming like so much of financial services is like customer acquisition CAC marketing budgets let's go hunt down and get the best customers and steal them from this yeah. other place whereas you know every day as a bank you have 18 year olds who are applying for a loan for the first time getting declined because they don't know how the credit system works or the fact that you need a credit history to be approved and they may be like a checking account or CD customer of your institution and you should want to retain them and help grow them into a good lending customer but if you don't look at it as an opportunity i think you sort of miss that so yeah i i i wasn't surprised to see my passionate rant for growing better customers not reflected in the cfpb's guidance because that's not really what they do but i i guess my my vague hope kia would be that banks will look at this as oh well we have to change the way we're doing adverse action maybe we should change it and go a little beyond what we would ordinarily do and see it as an opportunity. I don't know. Maybe that's crazy.
1: That would require, I think like one of the reasons why I like maybe would doubt that would happen is that the group issuing the, a the AANs is not the group that is like helping customers, right? Like these are two separate groups in the bank probably. Yeah. And so the question is whether banks can think about that as a problem and then either address the problem when the notice is issued and, or mm-hmm. decide like, let's try to not issue these. Mm-hmm. Like if, a customer applies for a loan and we can't approve them for that particular loan. We should probably have some more conversations with this customer. What do you need this loan for? What, you know, like, what is your financial situation? And then here are kind of the steps that we would need to take. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, here is actually the the notice, but yeah, just a different conversation that probably needs to happen. But those two groups in the bank have to talk to each other and then they can talk, talk to their customers.
0: No, that's true. And I, speaking of the two groups, I did talk to a lot of financial services lawyers for the writing of this piece that I wrote in my newsletter about adverse action. And um, they were great. Really nice people to talk to. Super knowledgeable. Couldn't wait to be good sources for a story, by the way, which I thought was interesting. But they're great. They really are. I was like, oh, my God, They're really good. good. Yeah, they really are. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But- Yeah, I don't think they tend to think always with that sort of business lens on it. So, it'd be an interesting thing to see. Um, Kia, can we hit a couple fun things to end? Sure. Okay, so I want to do a quick wait, but why? And I, I promise we won't spend a lot of time on this, but because it's
1: so cringe.
0: Well, I have a silly example to bring into this. Normally, we do wait, but why's that are like why does this Very part of important. the banking world Doesn't work there's... like this? And yeah, we we solve problems for the most part on that part of the podcast, but. I, today, I don't think we'll solve this problem. I would just like to note that a trend that I see on Twitter a lot is people who, and I follow like business people, bankers, uh, fintech folks, I have VCs, I follow a lot of different sort of people in and around the financial services ecosystem on Twitter, and they'll make personal life announcements, getting married, having a baby, relocating, moving to a new city, whatever it is, big, big like life events. And when they announce them, there is a strong, strong temptation, apparently, To use business analogies to make personal life announcements. So to give one example, a VC announces the birth of his child by saying, thrilled to announce a follow on round for my last seed investment. I see big potential exclamation point. And he, yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no! Don't do this. Like, please, I'm begging. Don't do this. Like, this is a profound human experience that you've just had that links you to literally billions of other people who've come before you. It's like a magical, deeply human moment. Don't think like a VC for those five minutes. Like, there's no reason to pander to your Twitter audience by the doing brand that. Like, needs please, to be
1: strong. You gotta oh, keep that brand. God, you gotta stay crazy. on brand.
0: Crazy. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is, I think. Maybe this is somewhat unusual for this podcast. I think you have like a more reasonable take on this. So why don't you give your slightly less hot take on this side? So
1: I have, I think I have a related, I have a related pet peeve, which is that okay. I cover a lot of m and I am really yeah. interested in bank M&A, but I find it cringy when I listen to people talk about bank M&A, but they talk about it in the context of marriage and they talk about like dating and courtship, but for the banks, and I like oh that makes me cringe so hard. You can definitely. Actually- I got in trouble
0: with Kia for yes. this because I used marriage <laughs> yeah. as an analogy in my newsletter. It wasn't MA though. To be fair, no,
1: you called it dating your wife, which is so much worse. Uh- <laughs> oh, also, it was a very extended analogy. I had to be in that analogy for a really long time. Like I had to learn all about no fault. I mean, like come on, I know about no. This is Kia's <laughs> the editor. Uh, she has her editor on like, right now. Oh, I was just I was <laughs> sitting there being like, does this. Are there no other analogies in the world? Do we need uh, an analogy to communicate this, this idea? I, I don't know. To be fair,
0: I don't go to all of your cool bank conferences yeah, you didn't know. that the you didn't Federal know the Reserve exposure. puts on. So No, I haven't been exposed to the same thing, but I think that's fair. And I will say, just to end this rant, that you are the author of the occasional business analogy for personal life things but in, in in fun, small, silly ways. So give us give us an example of this not being cringy.
1: I just want to say you can do whatever you want, but making a business analogy for a personal life announcement is high risk, high reward. And so it yes. may not pay off. And so you are either funny or you are deeply, deeply cringe. And you know, <laughs> if you do that without what you will. Mm. I think one that you should use business analogies to describe more things in life, not just your big life announcements. And yes. my example is that in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, there was like a group of nuns that made wheels of Gouda cheese. And I <laughs> wanted to buy a wheel, but I didn't want to eat a full five pounds of Gouda cheese. And so I got all of my coworkers. I sold them Gouda-backed securities or cheese-backed securities. I sold them tranches of my che- wheel cheese. And oh that was the extended... Trunches, actual, actual, actual slices. Very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that, is, pr- that is they nice. They were prime. They, they were super prime cheeseback security tranches and i i felt like that made people more excited than me just being like hey do you want to buy like a fifth of this buddha wheel (laughs) so (laughs) So that's um, fair you can find like these very absurdist i had a like a csa like a meat share and it was like if you had you had to pay like if you paid fifty dollars a month for your meat share they would give you $60 $60 worth of meat and that was like the whole thing and so this was my ROI this is the ROI of my meat share so th- I, I think it's good for that like I love to just drop a synergy in daily life to just see if yeah. anyone like logs it and it's like that's a weird thing to say why would she say that
0: well okay so the the more trivial the personal life announcement the better I like this yeah. by far so like <laughs> wheel of cheese super trivial yeah, I like when it when you find
1: yourself splitting a wheel of cheese just go ahead and talk and yeah. like, I think the more absurd secure like Come on, like the VCC round, like no, yikes! Um, but no, like it's a, a hey, cheeseback security is very, like, very funny.
0: That is funny. That is legitimately funny. So, and I, I will say, just to end this, that um, when I say everyone in my professional life is doing this, it's really just VCs that do it. So, like, I, this is <laughs> this is a specific complaint lodged at my friends in VC to please not do this anymore, particularly for major life announcements, particularly yeah. for the birth of children. You can just be uh, just. You can just be just, excited. Yeah, just live in the moment. Like, we're all with you. Yeah. We're really excited. There's no need to, like, spin it back into our industry. But if you do buy a wheel of cheese or half a cow or anything like that, feel free <laughs> yeah. to to call up Kia for analogies you can use. All right. So one last thing. Kia, I wanted to end today with our possibly unanswerable question. And we have actually a really good one because I think that you and I have a maybe – Slight philosophical disagreement about the nature of a very important concept in financial services, which is. I'm also in a
1: cult, so that's the other thing. I know,
0: I know. So we're (laughs) going to talk about that. So we're talking about personal financial management, uh, a topic both near and dear to me and Kia's hearts. So, Kia, the question is what is the right way to build personal financial management? Like, what should we be doing here? What is your philosophy for what this should be? How do most people seem to get this wrong? Yeah. Like, what are we doing here?
1: So I can only really speak from my experience with personal financial management. I have never built one of these products. I have just Tried to manage my money.
0: They're they're um, hard to build, from everything I understand, and <laughs> in particular the the lack of reliable open banking infrastructure yeah. open in the banking U.S. Is gonna is, solve this one. Yeah, I mean, it, I think if it just makes people who build PFM apps lives easier to not have these systems constantly going down, they'll be happy. But anyway, keep going.
1: Right. So. I think one thing that I struggled with before entering the cult of you need a budget or WinApp, which sure. is the personal financial management cult I'm in, yeah. is that I was constantly doing mental math in my head about expenses. And then the only thing my bank told me is how much money was in my bank account. And then I had to figure out basically what the math was going to be. And so that math looks like both categories of spending and then individual transactions themselves that are within each category. And I felt like one reason why I, one thing that I didn't like about free personal management tools, like kind of like a mint, is that past transaction data is actually only so useful and so that you know how big each of your budgetary categories needs to be. It is not, it does not feel useful, again, because it doesn't tell you when it looks at your bank account what the future obligations on that money will be.
0: Right. And so, so you have you have $10,000 in your checking yes. account, but seven days from now, your rent is going to get paid out of there. Uh-huh. You know, on Sunday, you're going to pay for groceries using your debit card, you know, your credit card bills coming up in 14 days, right. so on and so forth.
1: And I think that one way I know this doesn't work is that I am one of those people who found one thing that actually helped make sure that I didn't miss any of my really, really important bills is I had to open a second bank account at another bank so i wouldn't look at my checking account and think about spend money that was already obligated to a debt and that is a pretty common like piece of advice that people who graduate from college get which is to open two different bank accounts at two different banks and then from your paycheck put all of that bill money or the student loan obligation money into that account so you won't accidentally spend it that's how ineffective some of these free category transaction style PFMs are, in my opinion. And because they don't match the amount that you spend on a monthly basis, they can give you that number, but they can't give you the future obligation analysis and they can't do the math for you. And so, you know, when I sign up for WinUp, I'm not, this is, this is my opinion. I'm not sponsored by YNAB. He YNAB is but when i signed getting paid
0: by YNAB yeah, to make but this. But if, if you do, do, do want to try job. YNAB,
1: I've got some referral codes. Please <laughs> send <please laughs> me out for them. Yeah, yeah. When I signed up for YNAB in one week, I was like, this is game changing because eh. YNAB took all that math I was doing out of my head and then yeah. took my balance in my bank account and allowed me to create useful data on it, which was that I could project my future spend, I could model with it. And then that's actually for me where I feel like that's what removed the stress of managing my money and the uncertainty is that YNAB built this like pretty involved integration layer, like the amount, you know, the balance, the transactions, the amount of accounts, right? The daily reconciliation, right? Like I have to daily reconcile my accounts. It's not a lot of work, but I have to do it every single day to make sure that the data is the best and closest it can be. But I also don't see, so I love YNAB, right? And I, so- Yeah, yeah. And, and it solved my problem with personal financial management. And so every time I read about other types of financial management, if it's just transaction data, if it's just budgetary data, if it's just past transactions, to if it's like link up all of your accounts so you can see all your money in one place, that's not useful, right? No, The no. useful yeah, thing is the modeling, that the, the marrying of the modeling, right? And. The utility of YNAB truly is like, they want you to spend last month's paycheck. They don't want you to spend money that comes in. And you can do that because you have the data over time. And so I think that it has to be all or nothing. Don't do it if you can't do this. Because what you will offer customers, it will be something that doesn't speak to their pain and stress. And so I would prefer that you don't offer them anything at all. You don't even acknowledge that this is a problem in their life. If you can't offer them a tool that, Directly solves the problem, but only merely speaks to only like exacerbates the stress almost. Right. So right. Wh- so tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm in a cult and why this is a problem we can achieve with like less than a hundred percent of kind of YNAB functionality. No, all right. And so separateness and separateness.
0: I won't tell you that you're wrong because you know, to each their own, and twice on Sunday, as my mom likes to say. I will say that YNAB customers are. Fanatically loyal to WineApp. Like if you're a WineApp person, you're a WineApp person, and it's a fierce because love Because it that solves your problem.
1: <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you.
0: And I, I think. Why that, would I
1: go back to worrying about money? <laughs>
0: I why Why would you? No, I mean, I. It speaks to something that's interesting because okay, so you just said it's, it's really easy. It doesn't sound easy to me, and uh, so let me describe a different version of this problem. And I think this speaks to the core issue with PFM, which is. PFM is not one market. It's a bunch of individual types of brains that think about this and manage money differently. And and to your point, feel stressed about money in different areas. So for me, I'm not sure why my brain works this way. But for me, from a budgeting perspective, I am a very intuitive budgeter. I don't know why. But just by glancing at my checking account on a fairly regular basis, and assuming that there's no huge medical bills or weird expenses that have thrown off my sort of mental math, I can very easily keep in my head an intuitive understanding of about how much money I have to spend. And so sometimes that'll flex up a little bit. Sometimes it'll flex down a little bit. But pretty much at the end of the month, I end up with enough money to cover all of my expenses plus whatever, right? And I very, very rarely have ended up in a situation where I've overdrawn my account, I very rarely ended up in a situation where I've had to revolve a credit card balance. I try never to do either of those things. And I've been fortunate enough, obviously, and we should talk about privilege as a part of all of this, to have enough money and to have low enough expenses that it hasn't put too much stress on that. Obviously.
1: Yeah, you've got like apparently 10 transactions you're holding in your head at all times. Yeah, yeah, like
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you well, can just I mean, cycle through your 10. With, with, with three kids, it's way more than 10 transactions now, which is making things a little bit more complicated. But... I think the intuitive like I know about how much money I have for different budget categories, like it just kind of makes sense to my brain. However, I have a different problem. And my problem is that my brain is really good at keeping me about at water level with whatever amount of money I have. But if I have financial goals, it's really difficult for me to layer those on top of this budgeting that I'm doing in my head, right? So for example, if I'm doing all of this, but I need to shave off $50 a week for the next six months in order to save up $4,000 so that I can spend it on some large thing, it's really difficult for me to do that. And so what I've noticed about myself is I have these patterns of I will, over the course of like six months or a year or a year and a half, basically just kind of tread water financially. And so I'm not like having a problem from a budgeting perspective, but I'm also not gaining ground in any ways that I want to gain ground in. So for me... And I'm not gonna say that I'm better or representative of a larger a checking, population
1: of checking account consumers. at another bank that you don't have to look at and then divert some of your paycheck. That is No, I don't hot, have to
0: do that. Hot tip. Yeah, that's I mean that's that is a <laughs> yeah, decent tip. Yeah,
1: okay, tell me, that tell is me a decent what tip. you need.
0: So what I need is, and I'll name check some specific apps that do this. Like I actually really liked digit, right? And digit was kind of the subject of a lot of sort of changing opinions I think over time because it's it had been around in fintech for a while the basic idea is you link it via plaid to your checking account it does what you're saying it analyzes your spending and your behavior patterns and figures out about how much money you're going to have left over but what it does for someone like me is it squirrels away a little bit that you don't need and so it'll go into your checking account and it'll just grab 30 bucks and it'll be like you don't need this 30 bucks they'll take it away it would break your brain this is like Crazy. this is like this is <laughs> completely like destroyed <laughs> yeah exactly so so to oh you this is like madness but to me this is amazing because
1: someone who has too much money but can't hold it all in their brain <laughs>
0: yeah well i mean it's, someone it's like
1: who doesn't have enough money and can't, can't oh stop it, it with
0: the don't have enough money um
1: <laughs> just, no wild. it's it just comes it's, and takes your money it does, yeah, and, and
0: the thing and is for solves me- solves a problem for you? Yeah, <laughs> because- It doesn't
1: create problems? <laughs> no,
0: no, no, because like I manage my finances in my head such yeah. that there is always a little left over, and if the margin gets thinner, my management in my head, I'll look at my checking account, and I'll go, oh, yep, I don't have quite as much as I thought, and I'll just sort of adjust down, okay, you can't do this, you can't do that, and so it's actually really helpful because what it's doing is it is imposing more discipline on me, but in a subtle sort of incremental iterative way so yeah. that I'll look up and I'll go and I had this experience multiple times when I was a Digit customer they'd be like hey congratulations you just saved $10,000 yeah. and I'm like get the hell out of here I saved $10,000 and they're like yeah and they would do surveys of like did you notice that you were spending less did you did this impact your quality of life blah 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 and I was like honestly no you know I mean so like it kind of speaks to that problem that I do think some people have which is money just gets kind of frittered away if it's in a budget or in a balance that you're sort of just managing against. So their ability to just sort of squirrel it away without asking me and without requiring me to do any work, game changer, loved it. So like simple automations, routines, things that can analyze things and sort of take yeah. actions on my behalf. They did have a guarantee that if you ever overdrew your account, they yeah. would cover the resulting fees. So right. big concern. So they had to address some of those, but I liked it. I, th- I thought it was great. To you, it sounds insane.
1: So yeah, it sounds crazy. But actually, did it ever bother you that your bank didn't do this for you?
0: Yes, it did. It totally did. So did it
1: like make you because Digit isn't free, right? Like you had to probably pay.
0: I was using it when it was free. And then they started charging five bucks a month for it, which everyone flipped out about. But like at the same time, honestly, like learn to pay for stuff. Like the reason everything sucks in the world is that we're paying for things we don't realize we're paying for. So just pay up a fee and like get a good service. But that's a different rant. I did wish that my bank would offer it. It's not hard technically. Like I sort of looked under the hood a few times. Does your
1: bank have the technology to offer it? And does your bank not understand that your particular personal ma- financial management problem is that you feel like you have trouble socking away the money in your account yeah, yeah. and imposing the discipline on, on you to transfer the money? Because I'm sure your bank wished that you had a $10,000 savings account with them, totally. but they didn't really understand your particular thing that didn't feel accessible to you about your money, right? Like I think and, you know, one of the things that makes me saddest about banks is that I live in a world where I have to pay $95 or $99 to INAB every year because this wasn't made available to me by my bank. Because while my bank, you know, keeps my money safe from failure because it's insured by the FDIC, and while I do have, like, a really useful, you know, debit and credit card, my bank wasn't sitting around being like, oh, God, that's, you know, like, Kia has money, but she might not, like, feel really in control of her money. Totally. And that, like, I really wish that I could recommend a bank that helps people feel in control of their money. But instead, I, what I do is I recommend YNAB for yeah. people who feel like they don't know where their money goes. And digital banking and all of our like transaction data, mm-hmm. if YNAB can use it, if Digit can use it, I know our bank could have used it. I mean, we could have lived in a world where like YNAB doesn't have a market to exist because banks would have just built this functionality in from the beginning or they would have built it in like five or ten years ago. But instead, we they still have it. And I think like something that's so frustrating to me is that instead of living in the world where our banks, like not just being the holders of our money and keepers of our money, but help us be in control of the money and in control of our data, right? Like if what... We have open banking because banks don't do anything useful with our data. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's right. That's right. And, and and they're getting they're getting pissed about like, oh, I can't believe yeah. you want us to share our data. Like, yeah, of course we do. Like, I need help with this stuff.
1: This wouldn't solve every single problem with open bank that open banking is like supposed to solve. But I became a big proponent of open banking when I started using Not because I actually understood for the first time the value that my individual transaction data plus my balances yeah. plus my goals. Yeah. And what I knew I would have to spend for the rest of the upcoming months, that actually is useful actionable information and my bank could have been that information could have lived in my bank. I like I don't know if if there was like a bank that offered to do all that like would I move all my accounts over just so I could have it all in there, you know, the personal financial management bank or bank account or whatever. But I think it's so interesting that we kind of, you know, for when you talk about these different fintechs, I just keep thinking why doesn't a bank do this? Like
0: well, no, I totally agree. I you know, totally agree. I don't agree. know if you
1: ever said, yeah, how much time you spend being like, I think a bank could have done that. I think, yeah. I think if Intech could sell this product to a bank that's white labeled and whatever. Totally. I I mean, the envelope method and like stocking money aside, like I kind of, that would work for me now that I yeah. have app. It would not have worked for me before because I would just be ta- constantly dipping into that money. Right. And so, I don't know, it's just so interesting. And like, I think you were talking about like some fintechs that like help you like gauge, like, do you like that you're spending this money? Do you not like that you're spending this money? Yeah. And I still also feel like that doesn't really speak to like, again, I don't know if most people just feel unhappy with their purchases versus most people feel stressed about money and then they, act out their impulses and buy things that don't make them feel happy. Right.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good point because there's so many different aspects to this. Right. I mean, like I kind of wonder if the ideal solution for PFM for banks in the future is actually a hundred different PFM solutions. Right. Like and I don't think this is an absurd thing to say, honestly, like why is it that banks, which are the place that house all of our money, why do they not have a PFM for every single type of person and financial situation, right? Like, is it stupid to say that Bank of America should have a hundred different personal financial apps that are all designed to solve slightly different problems this helps you with you know developing a healthier re- emotional relationship between money and happiness this one helps you get a handle on projected expenses for the coming month this one helps you squirrel money away for savings this one helps, helps you squirrel a money subscriptions
1: for, for you yeah, like, like, yeah. like just, just this like this one seeks out like coupons for why you why is there or not like a hashtag? PFM
0: app store at all banks just being like for every single type of person come to us and we'll help you manage your money and the one Thing I will say on top of that is, it's really good business for banks too because I can tell you for a fact the savings account that I had with Digit, I paid five dollars for it, right? By the way, five dollars yeah. a month. They didn't pay any interest, and the reason oh, they didn't pay any interest whoa, is the, Alex, the reason. Why no, can't no, no. You just save no, money. No, it's good. It's <laughs> no. This is like this is really honestly a good thing, God. right? Because here's the thing: <laughs> banks are completely screwed up in the way they think about this because they assume consumers, when it comes to savings, want a high interest rate bullshit. They don't want a high savings rate. Like 1% of high net worth customers want a high interest rate everyone else wants help saving more money. And so like Digit yeah. is a perfect example of you build a service like this, you could like keep your deposit beta super low because I'm gonna keep money in the savings account because of the utility of setting money aside, not staying because you're bribing me with a high interest yeah, rate. Like, like it's what's so much 5%, better.
1: Was 5% like $1,000 versus I saved $10,000 without realizing it and it exactly. only cost me $60, right? Like, exactly, exactly. There is kind of a trade-off there. That is yeah. so funny. I- I'm so sorry that you weren't getting interest on this. That is I guess. Well, I should, this was during just, the ZERP days. So there really wasn't much money, interest. Especially. Yeah, there <laughs>
0: like, I I didn't miss out on much. Yeah. And I'm in a slightly different position now. But like I think there's something to that, like yeah. acorns, stash, digit, like we're just gonna squirrel money aside. And you know, we talk about this all the time. If you provide any type of like functional, like operating account to consumers, they will keep money in there because they are getting value from using that service. Yeah. You don't have to pay for that money, and you don't have to worry about that money just flying out the door. Like we started talking about liquidity, like this is a way to solve that. Drives me crazy.
1: Well, the other thing too is going back to the adverse action notice. Like, yeah. Again, the bank has actually all of this data. Yeah. And then when you kind of realize that you're not a good bank customer,s when you get that AAN, and you know, personal financial management tools like this could help banks communicate to their customers how to become better bank customers and be more qualified for credit. And I just, yeah. you know, I I don't know, like one time like someone was talking to me about like moving to a more expensive city. Yeah. And I said, oh, you know what you should do is you should set aside the amount of money that you expect to pay for rent in that more expensive city in a different account. And you know, right. do it in a bank that's not your normal bank. Right. And that will help you figure out if you can afford this move or mm. what would need to change. And why can't a bank help you do that, right? Like, and YNAB could help you do that. I can tell you, right? yeah, YNAB could help. You could build that in the line. I'm in, in your budget. But I am just, I every time I'm just like, God, what a missed opportunity that, you know, these fintechs, like, I, I don't know how many fintechs are white labeling this type of technology for banks. I think about Greenlight, like how Greenlight's probably does this but they're doing Little it under bit. financial education yeah and it's right? like, like it's, it's, it's for
0: kids, kids which is like great but like adults Give need me this too Greenlight
1: for adults yeah <laughs> yeah no
0: i i totally agree i totally agree i mean so, I, I think i've written about before is like so much of the white label pfm space doesn't have an opinion at all right and like i will say ynab for all of its uh quirks one thing I really like I about love, YNAB... Have,
1: what, what do you have against YNAB? Did you ever use it? Like, what's going on here? I've
0: played around with it. It's um, it's not for me. But um, I'm not oh, a YNAB person. God. It's totally
1: fine. It's totally fine.
0: Like, there's lots I'm, of ways to live I, your life.
1: Like, I'm in the cult and I like, can't understand. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. When, yeah. People, like, when people talk about it, I'm just like, you must she's have been like, doing like, it. what are you? I'm yeah, just you like, are, I don't know.
0: She's like, I'll come over to your house and I'll help like, yeah, you set up you all like, your little <laughs> categories. But the thing about App that's so cool is... They have a very specific philosophy and opinion. And if it's not for you, that's fine. Like, if it's not for you, you move on. But if it's for you, it's opinionated, it's specific, it's, like, built for you. And to me, that's when I look at PFM at banks, it's so generic. It's so, like, we're going to build something that's not really useful for anyone so that everyone can kind of use it. And that's a terrible way to build stuff. Like, build hyper-specific products that some segment of Kia's out there will love— and then go from there. That's a good way in to do store, it, right?
1: In the app store, in the app store, just ask like a customer, yes. hey, do you want this? Do you want this feature enabled in your account? It'll cost you X dollars. you yeah. can take that, whatever. Or you can get this functionality for free if you have our credit card, right. something like that. It just seems so wild to me that the bank was like, "What should we do with this data?" I know nothing. I mean, yeah. they're doing it. they're doing something with it. I'm not saying that. No, they're not no, doing it.
0: I I will say they're doing nothing or close to nothing, and 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 like not only nothing, but we'll stop anyone else from getting it.
1: Yeah, I was doing nothing with that data. And then YNAB showed me exactly why that data was so powerful. And then I was like, oh, no, open banking for life. Like, And right. I'm only in this because, again, my bank wasn't going to offer that functionality to me. So I have to get it from somewhere else. And I have to be able to move that, get that data out of my bank. And I was actually just sharing this week. Um, I'm in a YNAB Facebook group. Um, <laughs> I'm not like an active user. Yeah, just, you are. I'm just like kind of a lurker. Yeah. Um, but someone was talking about how they use YNAB and their community bank doesn't allow for the API functionality to import their transactions and their balance data. And then they called another, and they said it was a security issue. Sure. And then they called another bank in town, another local bank in town, and that bank said also the same. And she was like, well, what do I do? How can I use YNAB and this? And so people in the comments were saying, you know, you can manually import it, right? You can just like look it up and manually import the or you can write the transactions down and then just manually reconcile them. They don't have to import. Someone said, oh, you can do a download of your data every day and then upload it to YNAB. And then someone, you know, it shouldn't surprise anyone. Some people were like, change your bank. Like other banks do not have this problem. I'm sorry that you, the two that you've spoken to do. But I, again, was just thinking like, it is so sad that this bank customer feels like she needs YNAB. And she doesn't have this product from her bank. And then when she goes to her bank, her bank is saying, we will also not help you feel like you are in charge of this. Because for reasons, you know, that other banks that, you know, the ones that I bank with have have managed, right? The security so thing is bullshit, so right. right?
0: Yeah, no, and, and I,
1: I mean, I have no idea, I mean, if you wanna, I want to, I want to be empathetic to is. these community banks, no, but
0: I just, I mean, like, it's it just
1: one, it was just creating so many problems for this one woman. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, and like, in the and, and if, group.
0: if the, and, and banks shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Like, if you can't get access to the fintech products that you want to use, because the bank is blocking the infrastructure necessary for those fintech products to work, it is not a crazy suggestion to change your bank. And if banks think that's a crazy suggestion... Right. And
1: this isn't the only time you're going to have this problem, right? Like This is going to be a problem. Like YNAB requires daily reconciliation to be effective. This is a problem she will encounter every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's friction. And for me, what her bank like was telling her in that moment, whether or not they're, they mean to tell her, is like, The problems that you are having with your money and the reasons why you have sought out YNAB, those are problems we are not interested in solving. And we're not even interested in helping, like, giving you the access to your data to solve those problems. And, like, I like banks. Like, I'm a bank reporter. Sure, sure. Nothing drives me crazier about banks and their relationships to their customers' problems, quite like the experience that I've had with YNAB and everything that YNAB has given me that I feel like a bank— can't give me and again like I just want to be clear these are just my opinions (laughs) and I like banks but they really missed the ball on what was possible with personal financial management and it feels like an entire industry of fintechs and YNAB and Dave Ramsey exists in part because banks did not they don't want to own this problem and so other people are creating and other companies are creating solutions to fill in the gap.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, um, and I think that uh, hopefully, maybe if banks uh, and customers start breaking up and getting divorced, Kia, that maybe banks oh, will change. How dare you? Maybe banks will change the way that they uh, treat their customers, and they will be in happier <laughs> marriages in not, the future. See no, how I brought the analogy back in at it. the very end. This
1: is so cringe. Oh, <laughs>
0: okay. Well, um, you listeners can weigh in as to whether it's cringe or not. Uh, we'd whether also whether he's love- funny
1: or cringe.
0: I mean, it's not Kia's (laughs) cheese banking tranche analogy, uh, which is truly hilarious. hilarious, But, you know, we do with what we can. Kia, thank you. This was so much fun. This may be the funnest podcast that we've done so far. Really enjoyed it. And good luck in your travels. I hope your bank nerd conference goes well. Yeah, good
1: luck in your travels. And I hope you don't get injured.
0: I hope so, too. We'll report back next month. And until then, uh, thank you so much. All right. See you, Alex. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love fintech takes, please tell a friend.